0: everyone, and welcome to the Then Again podcast. So glad you could join us. And today, I am very pleased to have with me a very dear and old friend, Heather Shores, who is the director at the Chieftain's Museum in Rome, Georgia. Hi, Heather.
1: Hi. Thanks for having me today, Glenn.
0: Oh, sure. We've known each other, what, 25-plus years now, pushing? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Which doesn't make us old.
1: It just makes us old friends. People age around us, and we stay the same.
0: This is an undisputable fact of history. Uh, so, But Heather, I forget how many years you've been there at the Chieftain's Museum, and it is, it's, the, uh, it's the home, former home, of Major Ridge, who was one of the leading Cherokee statesmen and played a very significant role, not just in removal and the treaty processes, but was well thought of and was a big player going, gosh, how far back.
1: Very far back. So, yeah. So I have been here at Chieftain's Museum, Major Ridge Home, for nine years. This is my ninth year. But I have been in the museum field for 20 years now, which also seems strange and not possible. (laughs) Um, So I've had time to, it was really interesting with the jobs that I've had in the past. And also because I have taught college level history for about 16 years, I have been able to learn about the context of the Cherokee and removal before I ever came here. And then when I came here to this museum, first of all, it took until I was really a historian before I appreciated the significance of this museum, because this is my hometown. I grew up in Rome, and this was a place you might go for field trips, but the impact of who had lived here and what had happened here didn't really occur to me until I became a historian. So when I got a chance to come here nine years ago, it was a chance to Bring my experience from the field and explore Cherokee history even more here, particularly the life of Major Ridge. So I learned a lot about Major Ridge. And as you said, he was influential long before there was a treaty or a treaty party. He was someone who had been a a leader and had served for the Cherokee Council since he was a young man. And by the time he leaves this home, he is in his 60s. So he had a long history of working for and with the Cherokee as a Cherokee statesman. And it's something that we tend to forget because we only focus on the treaty period.
0: Right. And, you know, he was, uh, I mean, for lack of a better word, perhaps this is too simplistic. He was a, a war hero, a war chief. He was a businessman. He was he was never a principal chief, right? But he served on the council most of his adult life.
1: He did. He was never an elected chief of the Cherokee, but he was on the council. And he was also chief negotiators for the Cherokee with the United States. So he would travel back and forth quite a bit to Washington, D.C. to try to negotiate and and handle things with the United States for his people. So he was well-versed in politics. He was, as you said, a businessman as well, and was all around a really smart, shrewd guy that was ahead of his time in a lot of ways.
0: So when he's leading or being one of the leaders for the Cherokee, we get into that 1820s period, which is called the Renaissance, where they begin to develop their own constitutional government, written language, newspapers, and things like that, they're really trying to make efforts to, quote unquote, play the game and show the United States that they're a sovereign country. And that's when some of the conflicts begin within the Cherokee Nation. And this is this is one of the things I kind of want you to talk about, if you would, is that we tend to, when we get up to removal, we think about oh, it's the United States government and Andrew Jackson versus the Cherokee. And very few people know about or appreciate those intense internal divisions within the Cherokee Nation itself.
1: Absolutely. And those were divisions that had been around and had been forming even prior to the Renaissance period of the 1820s. So I'll back up just a little bit and tell you a little bit about Major Ridge's youth and how he kind of comes to play in that. So the, one of the first things that you have to remember is he is born in 1771. So he is a little boy when the American Revolution takes place. So he will only be dealing with Americans in his teenage, youth and adult years. So he he's not someone who's dealing with a colonial entity. And that changes the game some, because when you had the colonies, of course, you had people who tended to come and go a good bit, even though there was new settlement all around. And as we all know, in any time you have that first contact, which had gone back years before, you're going to see the two groups change one another. So the Cherokee had already started to change for a while, and they will be living just like Americans in the United States, even when he's a little boy. So he grows up and he starts to become a Cherokee youth and a warrior. He was very well trained to be a warrior. And I know that this is hard for you to believe. But white people would actually violate the boundaries of where they were supposed to be and come into Cherokee territory. No, I know. That,
0: that couldn't be. No, How
1: could that ever happen, right? <laughs> How could that happen here? What do you mean people are violating a treaty line? <laughs> so he actually will fight against the United States in the 1790s as a young man because he was born and lived in what became Tennessee. And you had so many settlers who were coming over and violating those boundaries. So he fights against people like John Sevier, who, of course, will go on to become one of the governors of Tennessee and Sevierville is named after him. When that happens, he actually moves his family deeper into the nation and they will settle at Pine Log here in Georgia, which is just outside of Adairsville. And he will continue the fighting when that fighting ends. Incidentally, here in Rome, there was a very big battle called the Battle of Hightower or the Battle of Etowah where this kind of Cherokee Creek native coalition was defeated, and he will have to go back to Pine Log and take care of his family there. He finds out that his parents have passed away while he's been away fighting, and he's responsible for his brothers and sisters now, so he settles down there. By this time, the Cherokee had formal town systems. Now, they're not towns like we would think of today, necessarily, but they had town systems, and just after the revolution, you had so many Indian agents that were sent by the United States to native people to try and assimilate them. I think part of it was you've got some land, we might be interested in that one day. And if we can get you to live like us, maybe you'll be less scary and we can make money off of you. So you already had that influence. So Rich goes back to a Cherokee town and he really settles down and that's when he becomes a statesman that's when he starts to serve on the Cherokee council and he gets on the Cherokee council in his twenties, which is pretty amazing. Known as a really good orator and could really convince people to follow his line of thinking in a lot of ways. So his political career started when he was very young, he gets married. He and his wife end up having their own farm, which is just out, was outside of Adairsville as well. in Calhoun, the Calhoun area. And then when the war of 1812 breaks out, and the Creek War begins, he will play a significant role for the Cherokee. So with the Creek War, as you know, you had Creek Indians that wanted to go back to their native ways, and they signed uh, signed on to be allies of the British in the War of 1812 and had their own war, which went from the Ohio Valley all the way down into Alabama, um, just beyond the line of where we are here in Rome. So he will actually recruit about 500 Cherokee volunteers to serve, to fight against these Red Stick Creek because it was a tricky situation for groups like the Cherokee who had become fairly acculturated into American lifestyle by then. You don't want to seem like you're siding with the Creek. So you want to try to side with the United States. You have to figure out which is the better bet for you, which Native Americans had had to do ever since there had been European contact. So he recruits these Cherokee fighters and he himself will become one and he will fight At the Battle of Horseshoe in Alabama in 1814 and helped Andrew Jackson finally really put down that Creek Rebellion that had gone on. It's because of his service in the military there that he not only comes to know Andrew Jackson very well, but he also earns the rank of Major. So prior to this, he was just the Ridge. That was the English translation of his name. But now he'll be Major Ridge from here on out. So he will be one of the air quote negotiators (laughs) for the United States when it comes to removing the creek from their land in the treaty after the Creek War. And he'll make a good bit of money off of that. And with that money, he will move his family to this spot here in Rome, where the museum is today. So he was a very savvy politician, soldier and businessman before he ever came here. And he comes to this site in 1819 and has a plantation of over 200 acres of land here. In addition to selling crops, mostly corn and wheat, he had a trading post because one of the chief roadways ran just behind where the museum is today and operated a ferry across the Ustanala river, which is why our big park downtown is named Ridge Ferry park for that. So he will be one of the wealthiest Cherokees in the nation by the time you even get to that Cherokee Renaissance. So he will be part of that kind of 1% for the Cherokee Nation. And most people, when they think of the Cherokee, they don't think of it as a community. They think of the isolated spots, but it wasn't that. It was a whole community of people. So while Ridge makes quite a bit of money, he had about, in today's money, would be about half a million dollars by the time he left here. Not all Cherokee are living that way. Most of them are tradesmen, tradesmen, or they are farmers and they live in log cabins and they don't live the way the Ridges and the Rosses and the Vans are living. So there's already a divide in the Cherokee Nation socioeconomically by the time you even get to the Cherokee Renaissance. And it's families like the Ridge family who are in that 1% that deal the most in politics. Ridge will send his children to mission schools. His oldest son, John, and his nephew, who was Elias Boudinot, will go all the way to Connecticut and study before they marry white women and are run out of town and have to come back right. to the Cherokee Nation. So his whole family will be involved in the Cherokee Renaissance. Interestingly enough, Major Ridge will never learn to speak or write English in any fashion. So I was hoping, hoping you would always, bring that up.
0: Yes. That's... yeah,
1: Yeah, he will always have interpreters, and his oldest son, John, will be one of his interpreters. So by the time you get to the Cherokee Renaissance, you already have families like the Ridge family that have established themselves as Southern farmer plantation owners. Ridge owned slaves, as many of the wealthy Cherokee did. He had between 15 and 30 slaves here on this property at any one time that were Choctaw slaves and African slaves. And people have a hard time grasping that, but they were living like the other Southern Americans around them. So you already had that kind of socioeconomic and somewhat of a political divide in the Cherokee before the Renaissance. But with the Renaissance, again, like you said, it's the Cherokee trying to play the game by the rules they are given in order to stay here and prosper and win, win that game. So they establish their capital at New Echota in Calhoun. They have their own system of government They have their own legislature modeled after the U.S. legislature. They have their own court system modeled after the U.S. court system. They have their own constitution modeled after the U.S. Constitution. And as you said, they have the Cherokee Phoenix newspaper, which was published in both Cherokee and English. So there was a higher literacy rate among the Cherokee than all the other Americans living around them. But in the end, it still won't be good enough.
0: Right. And that's I think that's part of the reason we think of when we think of the Trail of Tears and Removal, we and you know, most Americans tend to think primarily the Cherokee, there were there were a bunch of other tribes that were moved out west at this time period. But the Cherokee I think that's what is most tragic because as as we've said, they played the game, they had these amazing leaders, they had the will and the knowledge and the intellect to be equals of the Americans. And and folks like the Ridges and the Rosses quite honestly, had far more in common with their white plantation elites than they did with other more common Cherokee. And it's those it's those elites that begin the process of trying to resist removal. And I know we unfortunately we don't have time to go into all the Indian Removal Act thing and the court cases and things like that. But it does finally come down to the two parties within the Cherokee Nation when it seems that removal is approaching an inevitable status that the true split begins to happen. And, and major Ridge ends up leading the treaty party. So tell us a little bit how someone like Ridge comes to be in favor. Well, I don't want to say in favor of a treaty accepts a treaty. Let's put it that way.
1: Sure. Yeah. Because you were running out of options pretty quickly. And Major Ridge, he had even been, you know, part of the group among the Cherokee that had passed a blood law several years before that said, if you give up Cherokee land, you can be killed for it. So he did not do this lightly in any way, shape or form. But I think because of his experience, he was older than John Ross. He was older than some of the other Cherokee leaders that were in government. And he had seen a lot. He had seen what had happened with the Creek after the War of 1812 and the Creek War. He had seen how that removal had gone. By the time you get to 1835, he has also seen what has happened to the other tribes that were affected by the Indian removal act in 1830. And that had gone with mixed reviews and results, so right. to speak, right? He also was thinking about the future for his people in a lot of ways and how would this affect them. It became pretty clear that even though they'd done everything they could to police the United States, it just wasn't enough in the end. So as an older statesman, he is thinking about the future. Now, again, we can look back and go, well, that was a bad idea. <laughs> it's easy to do that from a 21st century point of view. But at the time period, they didn't know how removal would go for them, especially if they signed a treaty agreeing to do that. They didn't know that it would be you know, a decimation of their people. So it's easy for us to to judge that. But he says very plainly in one of the speeches that he is giving to the Cherokee to try to present their side of it that we don't do this for us. We do this for our children and for our grandchildren. We know that we have a greater claim to this land because it was given to us by the living God above, but the Americans got their deed from the British. But if we want our children and our grandchildren to thrive and live, this is something we need to do. Because at that time, you have to consider this you had already had the Cherokee land lottery take place in Georgia
0: Mm -hmm. in
1: 1831, right? In 32. So the state of Georgia had already divided up everything these people owned and given it away to other people that had just not taken possession of it yet. So what are you going to do? Are you going to try to stay and negotiate, which is what John Ross tried to do and basically delay as much as he could? Are you going to try to fight? Well, the Cherokee don't have a standing military, at that time, but the United States does. And guess who's in charge of it? Andrew Jackson, right. the famous Indian killer, right? Right, right.
0: And as for you R. say, R. You Ridge, Ridge is a warrior. He's seen what the Americans do when Indians resist. He's seen it in the War of eighteen twelve. He's seen it in... Uh, he was probably old enough to remember what happened to the Cherokee in the seventeen late 1770s.
1: Exactly, after the Revolution, when that goes very badly for them because they sided with the British. Right. And even those few who didn't, he still are going to have you're never going to be enough. You're never going to be enough. So the other option is to take the best deal you can and go. And that's as a statesman, as someone who negotiated treaties in the past, that was his choice. So the treaty party will become, he'll become the leader of the treaty party. And the treaty party will meet in this house several times before they go on to sign the treaty of New Echota at New Echota in 1835, which is this then passed in 1836. And they're given two years to move.
0: So, Ridge makes a tough decision, what he sincerely believes is the best decision, or at least maybe the only decision, and uh, accepts, obviously, the terms of the treaty, since he was leader of the treaty party, and he and, and his cohorts, they go ahead and they go out west. They don't wait for the delaying tactics that Ross and the other folks are using. They they go ahead and they go west, and they they settle there, and I guess they think that it's done, but it's not.
1: No, it's absolutely not. So they had already been kind of excommunicated from the <laughs> Cherokee government as soon as they you know, were part of the treaty party. And indeed, when you had 20 people who signed the treaty, because most people don't understand that they signed the treaty on their own. They did not have permission from the Cherokee government and certainly not from the principal chief to do that. So it was not even a legal treaty, according to the Cherokee. But of course, it was enough for the United States. So Rich and his family pick up from here and move and go ahead and go to the West. You still have to start completely uh, over. You have to build your house. You have to build your business. And the Cherokee were given compensation based on a Cherokee census and evaluation that had taken place a few years before that evaluated the things you owned. So you were given compensation for that, supplies to move West, and then there was money set aside and land set aside in Oklahoma and the Indian territory at that time for you to start over. So they go ahead and leave ahead of time. He leaves here with his family in 1837. And of course in 1838, there are many Cherokee who are still here that are hoping to negotiate and get to keep their land. And by the time you hit 1838, that's when they're forced out along their portion of what we call the Trail of Tears. Trail of Tears stands for every group that was forced West. The Cherokee just happened to be the last to go. So we associate them most closely with it. But for the people who had to go, it went from bad to worse. The state of Georgia was so intent on getting rid of the Cherokee. They had tried to do that from 1802 on when Thomas Jefferson was president. He said he would move these people when the time was right. And he passed that buck on down the line with the Georgia Compact. But the state of Georgia wanted these people gone. There were about 16,000 Cherokee in the nation. 9,000 lived in Georgia. The others lived in the surrounding edges of different states like North Carolina, Tennessee, and Alabama. But the capital was here too. So what Georgia did became a template for what the other states would do. And Georgia wanted them gone so badly that when the time came for the Cherokee to be removed in 1838, they rounded up every Cherokee left in the state and sent them north to Ross's Landing in Chattanooga in just three weeks. That's
0: and then good. from there, they lingered. Yeah, yeah they lingered pretty quick. And then by yeah.
1: Time, yeah, by the time they get on the move, it's an early winter, and it's a complete disaster.
0: Right, right. Partially because of the state of Georgia's greed, partially because of the relative unpreparedness of the supply route, and partially because of... Ross is continuing to delay this. The army wanted, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. The army wanted them to go in the warm weather when it was going to be not so bad. And Ross delayed and delayed and delayed.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. So one of the reasons, and most people don't know that, that part of, Part of this is John Ross, too. (laughs) Um, You know, he did. He wanted to delay. And again, that was more of his delaying tactic. But, oh, we don't want to move in the summer. It's the season of sickness. We want to wait and we want to go in the fall. And by the time they actually get on the move, there's not enough supplies left. And there's an early winter and it's a complete disaster. Now, a lot of people who come here don't realize there wasn't just one road that took you. the right. (laughs) There were four principal routes that people took. So people will come in here and say, where did the Trail of Tears start? Well, it started where
0: you lived, you know, where you were removed from your home. That was your trail. Every Cherokee's front porch. Yeah,
1: exactly. But there were four principal routes that people took. And if you took that northern route, you ended up all the way into Illinois in early winter, and you're faced with snow and poor conditions, and about four thousand Cherokee, a quarter of their nation, dies on the way out there. It's a it's a horrible thing, and it's a decimation of their people.
0: And when they arrive, they realize they've lost their ancestral lands. They've lost their they've maintained their sovereignty, but just barely. And when they get there and realize what they've traded their ancestral lands for out in what's now Oklahoma, it's not the most productive farming land, they realize that this has been an illegal treaty that is forced on the entire nation. And some of them get there and they are looking for a retribution.
1: They absolutely are. They absolutely are. So by the time you get to June of 1839, then you have got people who are out for blood. Now, you already had had really tense relations between pro-treaty and anti-treaty people here. But when they get out there, that boils over. So in June of 1839, you have Major Ridge, his son, John Ridge, and his nephew, Elias Boudinot, who had been a politician, but also the chief editor of the Cherokee Phoenix newspaper, that were all killed within an hour of each other by their own people. And they're buried out there today. Now, Ridge was quoted when he signed the treaty, I have signed my death warrant. So he knew exactly what he was getting into. And that's exactly what happened to him. So they, there were others that were scheduled to be killed. Some of them were forewarned and were able to escape, including Stan Wadey, who was Elias Boudinot's brother, who will go on to be a Civil War general. And when those people are lost, when those leaders are lost, their families basically flee and go to Arkansas and try to live there until things settle down. So usually we take the Cherokee, we get through the Trail of Tears, we get them to their land in the West. And that's it. They all danced off into the sunset. But that is not, that's not the case
0: at all. Right.
1: Once they get out there, you have fierce fighting between the pro-treaty and the anti-treaty groups among the Cherokees. So much so that in 1846, they have to sign a treaty among each other to exist as a nation so that the federal government of the United States will continue to give them compensation. That's how fierce the fighting is. And that's also one of the reasons why people like Stan Wadey would sign up for the Civil War very early because they could use a military reason to exact revenge on the people that they felt killed their family. So Stan Waity will burn John Ross's house down out there in Indian territory, and he will be the last Civil War general to lay down his arms in 1865. He wants to keep things going. So it's not just a happy story once they get out there. Not only are they starting over from scratch, but there are intense political differences between them. And then they also have to sort everything out after emancipation. There are a few people who realize that if you owned enslaved people here in the homeland, you took them with you. So there were a lot of enslaved people who were on the Trail of Tears themselves. And then once you get out there and emancipation happens, what happens to these people? So the Cherokee for a long time debated that and then decided to create a status of Cherokee freedmen so that these people who were brought there could also have benefits, which came up again about 10 years ago when they wanted to strip those people of those benefits. So this is an ongoing saga that didn't stop once the Trail of Tears was completed.
0: Right. It is a it is a continuing story, there's no question. But, you know, Major Ridge played such an important role in those early days. And I think one of the big reasons I wanted to drag you onto this podcast with me, Heather, is so that we could help people understand that he's not—he's not the bad guy. This is such a complex and nuanced story, and most sources that are out there about the treaty and removal and that process, most of them, especially up until very recently, tended to paint the ridges and the treaty party as just absolute traitors who shouldn't even—whose who, point of view shouldn't be considered. But I think that slowly started to change with folks like you there at the Chieftains Museum. Is there any place people can go? Well, tell us us how to come and see the Chieftains Museum and then tell us if there's any sources that provide a more nuanced perspective on the Ridge family.
1: Well, you can come see us here in Rome. We are located at 501 Riverside Parkway here in Rome and our operating hours are Wednesday through Saturday from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. unless we have a big fundraiser or a holiday going on. So you can always call us at 706-291-9494 to make sure we're open And make sure that, you know, there's not a huge group of kindergartners who will be here that day if you want to come (laughs) experience the museum, because you never know. You can also visit our website at chieftainsmuseum.org and learn more about this house. So there are some of the newer sources that tend to focus less, focus less on painting historical figures (laughs) like Major Ridge in a bad light and in a more unbiased fashion. One source that's not a new source, actually, but gives you a lot of information about the Ridge family is an oldie but a goodie Cherokee tragedy by Thurman Wilkins. So it has a lot of information about the ridges themselves. But some of the newer works, I think about Steve Inske's Land, mm-hmm. that talks a little bit more about... Uh, the American politics that play into it. It's really easy for us to look at the Cherokee and go, well, this was the bad guy and this was the good guy. But let's just ignore that the United States made these people move in the first (laughs) place. let's, Let's just not bring that up, right? So he tends to explore things a little more from that point of view, which is good. There are also some things like Pushing the Bear is one that you can check out as well. And the author's name escapes me at the time. But you have a lot of really good sources now that are coming out. There's one called Cherokee Betrayal that's just a few years old as well, that kind of give you a less biased thing. But the the more that you learn about the story, the more you understand the complexity of the story. There is a whole lot of gray in history. People tend to think it's black and white, but it's not. So one of the things that we try to do is if you come here and you learn. Our job here is not to make you love Major Ridge or hate Major Ridge. It's to tell you the story and you decide on your own. That's the main thing. Do your research and you can think anything you want about it. You can think anything you want about John Ross. I personally think that a lot of the sources favor John Ross because he continued to be the principal chief of the Cherokee until after the Civil War. So the people who are alive can help write the history, not the people who were killed but I think scholars are starting to see it in a different light. Now we have a very interesting relationship with all three bands of the Cherokee nation. We get along with them very well and do programs with them, but we still have Cherokee who come in here who hate major Ridge and they're welcome to do that. It's the story of their people. They can do whatever they want with that story. It's their history. It affected them personally and their family personally in the past, but just know the story, just know the story. We had a group of teenagers, from the Cherokee Nation in Oklahoma that came here a few years ago, and they thought Major Ridge was white. <laughs> so you've got to make sure. And I, I think they thought that because he signed the treaty. Because
0: Yeah. Cause he's a quote bad guy. Right. Yeah.
1: And because it doesn't sound like he's Cherokee being called Major Ridge, you know, that type of thing. So we've got to educate these younger people to look at things more broadly. Again, you can love Major Ridge, you can hate Major Ridge, you decide on your own, just know the history behind it and know that there's a lot more complexity than you might have gotten in your 8th grade Georgia Studies book.
0: Well said, so well said, I think we'll end there. <laughs> it's not, not that we hate 8th grade history teachers, they just, no. they're, they're struggling under a certain uh, constriction, let's say.
1: <laughs> Very much so, and I, <laughs> I think about when I was in 8th grade too, back when dinosaurs roamed the earth, right. you know? Right. There was not time to teach it and explore it, and there weren't a lot of good sources then. We've exactly. changed a lot with that over the changed years. Changed a
0: lot, yeah. Oh my gosh, Heather, it's so good to talk to you. Thank you so much for joining us here on Then Again. It's great to hear your voice, and hopefully, we'll get to get together and have some barbecue soon. I would love that, always. <laughs> All right, folks, that's it. Thanks for uh, tuning in, and we will see you in the past, in the future.
1: Then Again is a production of the Cottrell Digital Studio at the Northeast Georgia History Center. Be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. It really helps other people discover the show. There are a few great ways to support the History Center. Make a donation online by clicking the Donate button on our website at www.negahc.org. Become a digital member to receive exclusive invites to members-only live streams every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern. And you can register on our membership page at www.negahc.org. We also have an online gift shop with lots of great items for all ages. Use promo code THEN AGAIN for 15% off your online order. Valid on anything except memberships and handmade items. We'll see you next week for another episode of THEN AGAIN. Thanks, y'all.